Start your morning with the CNN Daily News Briefing. In just three minutes, we'll tell you about the stories that are making headlines around the world. To listen, tell your smart speaker to play the CNN Daily News Briefing or find us in your favorite podcast app. Good evening. We begin tonight by recognizing what a difficult week this has been for so many people and how tough the days ahead will be as more funerals are held in El Paso and Dayton. More moments for a parent or a child or a childhood friend to face the infinite sadness of feeling the word is, when it comes to a loved one, give way to was. My grandpa was. My child was. So many people are facing that now. So many who've lived those moments already at Sandy Hook and Parkland and Orlando and Pittsburgh are reliving them yet again. Because in many respects, there's sadly nothing new here, whether it's the weapons used, the first responders, the heroes, the heartache. Nothing new in the call for change or what feels like the endless, fruitless battle between the forces of gun control and gun rights. In some ways, though, we've really never seen anything like this. We've never seen a president offer division to the hurting instead of unity or use a visit meant to console to settle scores and air grievances, some of them entirely made up or be the focus of questions about whether his racist statements gave an already hate-filled person another reason to kill. And today, the alleged El Paso gunman made it clear, admitting he was the killer and that he specifically targeted Mexicans. Nor have we seen, as is being reported tonight in Axios, a president whose campaign officials say that having the president of the United States called a racist could be politically good for him. That's where we are. That's how this week is ending. It's also ending with the president making a claim that he's made before about action on gun restrictions. I think we can get something really good done. I think we can have some really meaningful background checks. We don't want people that are mentally ill, people that are are sick. We don't want them having guns. Who does? Well, we'll see where the NRA will be. But we have to have meaningful background checks. Now, keep it in mind, We've already seen where the NRA says it will be against them. They've just said so, warning the president his base would not like them and saying in a statement, quote, the NRA opposes any legislation that unfairly infringes upon the rights of law abiding citizens. Now, remember, the president's talked tough about his willingness to challenge the NRA before. He did it after the Parkland shootings, including at a gathering of bipartisan lawmakers where Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy put the challenge to the president. Uh, Mr. President, it's going to have to be you that brings the Republicans to the table on this because right now the gun lobby would stop it in its tracks. I like that responsibility, Chris. I really do. I think it's time. It's time that a president stepped up and we haven't had him. And I'm talking Democrat and Republican presidents. They have not stepped up. And they do have great power. I agree with that. They have great power over you people. They have less power over me. Some of you people are petrified of the NRA. You can't be petrified. They want to do what's right, and they're going to do what's right. I really believe that. Well, he alone could take on the NRA, was the message, except he didn't. And wherever you stand on gun regulation, that's just a fact. Talk is easy. Doing something that might upset the powerful NRA and some of his base, perhaps, that is tough. And though the president likes to talk about being tough and being powerful, he sure seems to shrink in size when the NRA starts whispering in his ear. So, yeah, the president has talked about tougher, stronger meaningful background checks before. He's singing that song again, only this time, as it was during his trip to El Paso and Dayton, he's largely singing it in the key of me. They supported me very early, and that's been a great decision they made. The NRA's made a great decision in supporting me, and nobody else would have won. As you know, they supported me very early, far earlier than anybody thought possible. 
So the NRA loves him, he says, but this isn't about the NRA, he claims. Hey, this isn't a question of NRA, Republican or Democrat. I will tell you, I spoke to Mitch McConnell yesterday. He's totally on board. He said, I've been waiting for your call. He is totally on board. And keeping him honest, he's not on board, not even a little. The Senate Majority Leader has merely said he'll take up the issue and only after the summer recess, perhaps because that's when maybe anger over the killings in Dayton and El Paso might have calmed when people may not be paying such close attention. As for the president, well, he just left town for his own summer vacation, first to the Hamptons, then to his golf club in New Jersey. As for winning over Democrats, the president expressed optimism there as well, but he couldn't stop himself from digressing, as he did in this moment, from the subject at hand to an ode to himself. And Chuck Schumer in particular loves my China policy, as you probably know. I said, I can't believe it. You actually like something that I'm doing. He said, not like, love. So much love for the, the president, his policies from Schumer, from the people of Dayton and El Paso too. rock star kind of love, according uh, to some in the administration, respect of the office, love. Flush with all that love, the president went on to say that he's, quote, winning and winning big, unquote, with China before getting back to background checks. And the nice new letter Kim Jong-un sent him. And basically, wherever you stand on gun legislation, getting any legislation through a divided Congress, that is hard enough. It takes persistence and focus a clear determination to keep at it. Well, today, the president claimed he's got all that, but he couldn't make it through a sentence without verbally wandering off to flatter himself, which, as the week has gone, is pretty much par for the course. Some perspective now on the news and this whole week of news. CNN political analyst and New York Times White House correspondent Maggie Haberman. So the president is saying uh, meaningful background checks. Not exactly sure what that means, but it is very reminiscent of the language he used in the wake of Parkland. It is. And at that time, his aides said he was there on background checks, that that's what he wanted to do. Um, and then the NRA intervened. It, depending on which aide you talk to, uh, he has been there all along for background checks and just sort of got cold feet when he was talking to the NRA in the last round. Other aides suggest that he has t- had a, a push to get there, but he's been discussing it with them since Saturday. Again, to your point, we have been there before. And not only have we been there before on background checks, we've been there before on legislation where the president has insisted there is an appetite for a deal on immigration, on a number of other things, and and there isn't. And so the proof is going to be in the pudding. Could this one be different? It might be. But so far, the signs that would require that, such as Mitch McConnell bringing the Senate back, Mm -hmm. having the immediacy of action around what just happened in Texas and in Ohio, that hasn't happened. And so is there still going to be an appetite in a few weeks when the Senate returns? We'll see. Right. I mean, it sounds you could just as easily make the argument Mitch McConnell is just trying to slow walk this and, you know, push it to a time when something else has come up and people are no longer as, you know, fired up about it. Um, Mitch McConnell and the president spoke several times this week, I'm told by a couple of people, and they talked on this topic. And basically, McConnell's viewpoint was that he's going to be he's going to do what his caucus wants, but the president's going to have to be the one who gets the votes. And so far, I understand that he's had conversations with folks like Lindsey Graham and he's had conversations with Pat Toomey. Um, but so far, there is, is not really a sense that he's doing the kind of arm twisting that, say, we saw on the tax bill in 2017. And until we see that, I don't think this is going to happen. It, it would, um, I, don't, I, I guess I shouldn't be surprised and stuff, but it's, you know, it's just it's normal when a powerful uh, human being who's the president of the United States says something that you you're sort of supposed to believe what they say and that it has meaning uh, and that they might follow through when the president, you know, mocked the other Congress members for being scared of the NRA uh, and said he's not and that, you know, he'll take it on. 
uh, and they want to do what's right, and then does nothing, and then yet again now is saying uh, it's not about the NRA. I, I don't know why... I mean, we're, it's like we are were, we were rationally sitting here saying, well, you know, maybe this time will be different. Here's we the, don't know. We don't know. Here's the, here's the reason why the president has said to aides that this will be different in terms of the NRA. The NRA is in a substantially weakened position that has, has, an, has an enormous amount of internal turmoil. Right. Um, so the, the president has privately said to advisors that he thinks the NRA is going to go bankrupt and they're not going to be able to come at him the way that they might otherwise in terms of financial support, that they wouldn't be there to withhold the support anyway. Remember, they were a huge outside funder of his election in 2017 in terms of being supportive. So he thinks that he's got the upper hand and he tends to look at things that way. But what other advisors have said to him is, you know, that he's sort of misreading this, although I don't think they've necessarily put it that way. But they've said the NRA is going to remain pretty powerful through your election and their members, many of them are your voters. So they're still going to have a voice. And when they start really, the NRA hasn't really come out pushing back aggressively yet. Mm-hmm. I'm told that is coming. If that comes, we'll see what the president is saying. Were there, uh, there was reporting about a phone call from uh, Wayne LaPierre from the NRA. It's actually the other, it was in the other direction. It was the president called Wayne LaPierre oh, really? on Tuesday, yes. And he was talking about how it's time, we're going to get this done, there's going to be a signing ceremony in the Rose Garden. And LaPierre was pretty clear with the president, I'm told, that that is not uh, something the NRA is going to support, just based on what they're describing it. Now, again, we have no idea what these details are. We don't know what we're talking right. about. There's no actual legislation. Right. Mean, again, he's saying meaningful background checks. That could mean anything. The statement is not meaningful because we don't know what he's talking about. In a sentence before he said that, he said, "I." We said, "I." We don't have specifics. Uh, the president also said that he had spoken with LaPierre, you know, several times this week. As I understand it, they had, as of yesterday, only spoken on Tuesday. So there are a lot of things being said that don't check out. We will see where we are in a few weeks. Just This is all, unless there is a, a push to build support for this by the president, and maybe there will be, but unless there is, this is unlikely to move forward. I, I'm smiling because I, the, that phrase you use, I mean, that could be a Chiron what did I say? on most days. The statement is meaningless because oh. we have no idea what he's talking about. Well, it's, I mean, I mean he, it's, it's he, a fascinating, he, it's, he, he, it's he, true, but it's just... used the word meaningful, so I was just saying... Right, that, yes, I, I know, it's, I, not it's meaningful. accurate. Um, the, it's, look, I, I, I think that... Most of the president's crises that he has dealt with in his administration, his time as president, have been of his own making. Mm. Um, this was not one. This was one. I mean, it, you know, I understand that, that pointing to the rhetoric in the in the manifesto that the uh, alleged shooter in Texas used, that people have, have connected to things that the president has said. But in terms of just sort of being at the president's own hand, this right. was not something he did. This is something he's had to deal with. And this was over the weekend when this was all developing, you know, 31 people at the time. It was it was, I think, 29, but 31 people. Uh, uh, dead uh, in in two different cities. This was a huge crisis, and a lot of his advisors will privately admit this was a commander in chief moment that he did not meet in real time. Right. So in I fact, think- he, uh, he to your point, he ultimately made it uh, a, Monday. A, a, a fumble of his yeah. own making. I mean, I'm wondering what you're hearing about. What are people in the White House actually saying about? You know the rock star tweet and the president talking about Beto O'Rourke and his crowd sizes. And- he, he has the president. His most of his aides will say the same thing that they have said after every single one of these moments. It's not like we are unused to hearing the president talk about himself or talk about his rally crowds. He does this in almost every setting he's in. He turns it into something about himself. It is glaring when it is something like this, which is supposed to be about the victims and the people who were suffering um, during these attacks. And so. His aides had hoped to get him in and out with sort of minimal contact with 
both the people he was seeing, but also um, minimal opportunities to go off script. The press was not invited in to the hospital at Dayton. And, and to be clear, Press is often not brought into those kinds of settings, no, as you know. As they I mean, should not be. Right. I mean, I mean that, that was that was a... But, was, but there was reporting that the president was annoyed. He was annoyed. He wanted them brought in. His staff had been working with the hospital, and they had understandably not done that. And then he did not, either didn't know that or didn't understand it or doesn't under... There's a gap between what he thinks the media is supposed to be doing, which is from his experience in, in you know, reality television and in, in business and real estate, and what being president is and what the press around that and the responsibility around that relate to, and he just doesn't understand it. I, I actually gave, was giving him credit uh, when there weren't cameras because I right. thought, oh, well, this is actually, this is how it should be. He should be privately meeting with sure. families and first responders. He, and He wanted, he, he has a thing about uh, believing that he should get positive press for things he should get, for, for moments like the address that he gave on Monday mm-hmm. where he, you know, denounced white supremacy um, or after Charlottesville. And, and, and all supremacy. And all, right, and every supremacy. Or after Charlottesville when he eventually gave that speech mm-hmm. uh, that was more condemnatory. Um, and then when he doesn't get the coverage he thinks he deserves, he lashes out. And this is following that cycle. So it's not a surprise, but the, the volume of it, I think, was the surprise yeah. and the degree to which he was ordering aides to push out positive images about you know, himself and what he was doing. It was just jarring. Maggie Haverman, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Uh, Some of what we've been talking about with respect to the president's behaviors, actions in the Tony setting are having effects beyond the West Wing. Just ahead tonight, an exclusive interview with a career foreign service officer who just quit in a very public way with an op-ed. He says he left fed up with what he sees in the White House and part of being and being part of what he calls the complacent state that enables the president. Coming up next, the photo out of El Paso that is also stirring controversy. The president and the infant uh, who is now an orphan, that little boy whose name is Paul, his parents were killed uh, at the Walmart. The question of whether it's an appropriate photo, the president giving a thumbs up, will ask the father of a wounded survivor head. As we reported at the top of the program, the El Paso shooter has admitted that, quote, I am the shooter. That's according to his arrest affidavit released today. And in addition, chillingly, it reads, quote, the defendant stated his target were Mexicans. Two of his victims died protecting uh, their two-month-old son. And tonight, a photo of the boy has set off uh, some controversy over what is appropriate and welcome presidential behavior and what's not. The photo was posted by the First Lady's office on her official account yesterday. Shows her holding the two-month-old whose parents were taken from him, uh, murdered at the Walmart in El Paso. President Trump is smiling, giving a a thumbs-up gesture, something he does routinely. We should mention the little boy's family welcomed the president's visit and are pleased with the photo. Others are not, saying it shows a lack of empathy. CNN's Jim Acosta reports the, the baby, whose name is Paul, had been discharged from the hospital but was brought back with an uncle to meet the president. The uncle told The Washington Post he is a Trump supporter. As you may know, many of the wounded survivors at two El Paso hospitals said they did not want to meet the president. One is Michelle Grady, daughter of Pastor Michael Grady, and he joins me now. Uh, Pastor Grady, uh, it's good to see you again. Uh, First of all, how is Michelle doing? Uh, Michelle is doing uh, well today. She had uh, surgery earlier today. Uh, She came through with flying colors, uh, and uh, uh, so uh, the doctor did a marvelous job, and 
uh, with her hand and her finger. She's not going to lose her finger, so we're grateful for that. And uh, the surgery went well. She's resting now uh, and getting ready for the next surgery down the road. Uh, I, when you and I had talked uh, earlier in the week, I think she had had a, a tube removed, which is a, a painful thing and that, that hurts. Uh, is she able to talk more than, than she was? I don't mean necessarily about what happened, but just uh, talk to, to, to you and your wife. Yeah, she's been communicating well. Uh, we've been with her all day, as you know, and, and last evening when she returned from the surgery on yesterday, once she came out of the anesthesia, uh, she was uh, talking and, and laughing and feeling much better. That's great. Uh, and, and so we're grateful for that. The doctors have been excellent at UMC. They've done a marvelous job in alleviating the pain uh, that's caused by the assailant's bullet. And uh, we're, we're just praying and thanking God for the miracle. Uh, because when she first came in, it looked like she was going to lose that finger, but now she's going to have her finger and and i believe she's going to make full recovery anderson thank yeah. you so much and I, and I just want to quickly remind our viewers because your story is extraordinary uh she was shot outside michelle was shot outside the walmart as the gunman walked in and yes. uh she was able to call uh your wife on the phone uh correct me if i'm wrong or That's facetime correct. but i think it was calling yes and your wife got in the car drove to the walmart got there in like yes. six minutes um, and right. got to your daughter, and then you drove. You yes. drove there too. Uh, you got there, yes. and ultimately there was a. You know there were so many people in need. You got your daughter into a cart with the help of someone else from Walmart, wheeled her up to where the ambulances yes. were, and you you all had to. Uh, you had to use your 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 preacher voice and and get attention. Uh, to, yes, I'm being polite yes. there. Uh, and get her into an ambulance. I mean, it, were it not for that, for, for, you know, the bravery of you and your wife and the, you know, just the quick thinking, who knows what would have happened? Yes. That's correct. Yeah, Michelle had the presence of mind uh, after she had been shot uh, to call her mom and to stay on the phone with her mom until uh, uh, my wife arrived. Then my wife had called me on her way here and uh, and uh, and she she was able to get to, uh, a Walmart employee to assist her in getting uh, uh, Michelle on the card and pushing her all the way down here to the, to the standing area where the ambulances were. Yeah. And so we're, we're just grateful for that. My wife did a marvelous job in, in well, convincing folks that Michelle was not only necessary, but it was necessary to get her the proper, yeah. proper help. Uh, by the way, if uh, I would like to get your wife's number because if I am ever in trouble in any capacity, she is the person <laughs> I want to call yeah. first. Um, but yes, listen, I, I want to ask right, you. I'll make sure I get right. it to you. I want to yes. ask you about your decision uh, not to meet with the president. Um, I'm wondering, was it a decision that you, that your daughter struggled over? And uh, what was your thinking on it? Well, there was not really any struggle when we found out the commander in chief was coming to uh, El Paso and might visit the University Medical Center. We made the decision as a family. Uh, we asked Michelle about whether she wanted to see the uh, president, and she said no. And uh, we made the decision that we did not want to see him as well because I had already spoken out of my passion the night before. And so it was a conscious decision uh, that uh, we would put a sign on our door, please do not disturb. And so I'm grateful that we made that decision. Uh, I don't think it would have done any good. It would not have been healthy for Michelle. Therefore, it's not healthy for us. And so I think it was a great decision to make. The, the, the photo that we showed earlier that's, you know, been, been uh, people have a difference of opinion about it and of uh, the president and the first lady yes. with, with Paul, the two-month-old baby, and the president giving the thumbs up. Yes. You, I'm wondering, when you saw that, what did you think? 
When I saw the pitch, I, again, uh, I thought about what I said uh, the, a couple of nights ago again, that words matter and now symbols matter because usually when you have a thumbs up, that means you're applauding or agreeing to something. And I didn't see anything to applaud. I didn't see anything to agree. Those children are orphans. They've lost both their parents. And it shows a lack of empathy and sympathy in the situation. And again, it shows that the commander in chief is more concerned about himself than the people of this nation in trying to heal and to restore us to a place of honor and dignity and be a blessing to that family. Uh, it, it turned out to be just another photo op. No seriousness about the real gravity of the situation. You know, the, the president is saying uh, for the second time that, you know, he wants meaningful uh, background checks, not clear what meaningful means in, in, in his mind. It's, it's similar to what he said after Parkland and, uh, and, and you know, and then the NRA uh, seemed to have changed his mind. Yes. I'm wondering if you think there's going to be change and what your message is. You had, a, you had a very strong message to the president earlier in the week. I'm wondering what your message is uh, to him tonight. Uh, in terms of what what you have seen over the course of this week and how you're feeling and what you think needs to be done. Well, I, I've, again, uh, I speak with clarity that I believe that the president of the United States, when he makes promises, uh, I come from a faith works-based uh, mentality. And the Bible says faith without works is dead. And so he can speak a thing, but until it manifests itself, it has no real power. The challenges before this administration can not only be to legislate, but to model uh, a real genuine concern for the safety of cities and the safety of the, uh, those members of uh, the United States uh, from a broad pers uh, perspective. And so I'm not too convinced that things are going to change because we've heard rhetoric before. Uh, but again, I'm from the show me state. I'm from St. Louis, Missouri, and I'm waiting to see more than hear uh, this response, whether it's going to manifest any real tangible change in the nation and how we deal with uh, violence, how we deal with the weapons uh, of mass destruction that are on our streets and in our communities. So I'm waiting to see if it's going to be real. But at this point, uh, I'm not convinced. Well, uh, Pastor, uh, Pastor Grady, I appreciate your time tonight. I'm really glad to hear that that, uh, yes. that Michelle is is on the right road uh, to, to recovery. And, I, and my best to your family and to your wife. Thank you. Thank you, Anderson. Thank All you right. very much. You take care. Uh, a long-serving Foreign Service officer quits and made no bones about the reason in a very public way. Coming up, I'll speak with him in his first television interview. In a scathing op-ed in the Washington Post, a career foreign service officer explains why he's resigned in protest of President Trump. His name is Chuck Park, and he spent 10 years serving in various countries for the United States. He wrote in part, I came into the government inspired by a president who convinced me there was still some truth to the gospel of American exceptionalism. A child of immigrants from South Korea, I also felt a duty to the society that welcomed my parents and allowed me and my siblings to thrive. Over three tours abroad, I worked to spread what I believe were American values, freedom, fairness, and tolerance. But more and more, I found myself in a defensive stand, struggling to explain to foreign peoples the blatant contradictions at home. He goes on to say he never saw an anti-Trump deep state in the government or a resistance. He calls what he saw a complacent state and a state where political appointees contributed to incompetence and contradictory policies that the president would then sometimes change on a whim without any notification. Chuck Park joins me tonight for his first TV interview about his high-profile resignation. So explain why you decided to, to resign. Sure. So let me start off by saying this is absolutely 
a, a personal decision for me. It was really difficult for me. You know, I don't mean to project my own values and the limits of my own conscience on the entirety of the federal bureaucracy. Right. So let me first say that there are thousands and thousands of federal employees who did not make the same decision I did. Um, and they are absolutely working to prevent this freight train from going off the rails and exploding. Okay, so respect for them. But, and I think this was the, the real kind of one of the core messages of my op-ed. Um, if you're a concerned American and you're hoping that some unelected official somewhere or a cabal of civil servants somewhere will resist this president and fight his policies from within the government, then you will be disappointed. You never saw any resistance or deep state? Uh, I certainly saw people's personal reservations. Uh, I never saw a deep state. Um, that's right. Uh, what I did see was people kind of really weighing this thing. And if I, if I can use an analogy, um, working as a diplomat overseas, as a foreign service officer, feels kind of like you know, watching your home from a distance. And so you know, even under the prior administration, and I mentioned this in my op-ed, um, I absolutely could see visible cracks in, in the walls, maybe even the foundation of our nation, or our government at least. Um, the past three years have felt like the house is on fire. And not only is it on fire, but there's a man purposefully lighting more fires. And so, you know, when I see, when I talk to my colleagues, it's not that they don't feel the same distress that I do. They absolutely do. It's not like they're not as concerned as I am about that house on fire. It's not that they don't have compassion for the people in that house who are being hurt. It's that they decide to keep their distance and hope that the house is still standing afterward. And for me, that is the definition of complacency. You, in fact, say that there's no deep state. There is a complacent state. So explain. I mean, because, look, uh, uh, foreign service officers uh, are working for the American people. They're working uh, representing America overseas. They're not representing any particular administration. There's an ambassador who's appointed. Usually sometimes it's a career foreign service person. Sometimes it's uh, some donor who knows nothing but is given a lot of money. Um, And yet plenty of people serve overseas in administrations they don't like. They don't agree with the policies, but they faithfully execute uh, the policies as is their job. That's absolutely true. So is that complacency or is that Um, service? So... Uh, let me come back to that particular question. But what I'll say is, I, I've thought about this for a long time, you know, at least two and a half years, not more than that. Um, and what I'll say is, I rationalize it to myself using the same words you used. You know, I swore my oath to the Constitution. You know, I serve the American people. I don't swear an oath to a particular president or a particular party. Um, and that's true, but that's really abstract. Um, so when you read the commission of a foreign service officer, of a diplomat like me, You'll see that it's written there explicitly. We serve during the pleasure of the president. And so what that means is the way we serve the Constitution, the way we serve the American people, is by working for the president that they elected. And right now, that president is Donald J. Trump. So did you, um, were there specific events or in the United States or specific policies uh, that you just felt you could no longer 
essentially be the face of in a foreign land? Um, you know, there's a, a there's no single kind of straw that broke the camel's back. There's the slow buildup, um, and maybe I'll call it moral distress, kind of with each successive kind of tweet or action. I mean, it started with the Muslim ban, the executive order in January 2017, um, and then defending white nationalists after Charlottesville. Um, it was family separation. It was revelations about squalid detention centers. It was, was it just yesterday? Federal agents kicking down doors and arresting parents on their children's first day of school. So what's different about this administration for me, and I only worked under two, but you know, at least in my lifetime, I've seen a number of presidents. What's different is kind of the naked, unapologetic cruelty. That's the first thing. Um, the second thing is, you know, the, the sheer kind of managerial incompetence uh, of this administration. The rollout of that Muslim man, that executive order, was disastrous. You know, in Vancouver, for example, we had, you know, that, we have a docket of interviews. Posting. That was my last posting, I'm sorry, at the consulate in Vancouver. You know, our consular officers and kind of all the employees there had pre-scheduled interviews for many of the nationals from the countries uh, from which travel was banned. That morning, they, many of them were caught mid-conversation with people when the news came in via cable. But even then, there was no forewarning. We had no idea this was coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, we might have even seen kind of the White House statement and then the cable. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll give you another example. You know, this is an experience I've had personally. I think I'm absolutely sure many of my colleagues have had the same one. You know, every morning we kind of read our cable queue, this, again, this inbox of, of guidance straight out of State Department headquarters drafted by at least cleared by, with the direction of political appointees. Mm. And, you know, an example, a cable will contain talking points for the day, let's say, on trade. And I am, you know, tasked with memorizing those talking points, you know, finding meetings with senior foreign officials, delivering dutifully those talking points. And it has happened to me that in a meeting with a foreign official, kind of mid-sentence, that official that I'm talking to will pick up their cell phone and point to a tweet from the, uh, the, the president that directly contradicts what I'm saying in person. So, so, so talking points that the administration, the State administration, Department, yeah. sends to you in the morning, sends the embassy in the morning, and you go and do your duty and start having a meeting about it with a foreign official, it, the president tweets in the middle of that meeting, coincidentally, and the foreign official says, you don't know what you're talking about. That's exactly right. Uh, or, you know, you know, it used to be the case that any pronouncements, any public statements by the president or the the Secretary of State, whether by Twitter, Facebook, uh, public statements, public remarks, are policy. And that was true under President Obama. If I saw him tweet something, if I saw a press, a statement on the White House website, I could repeat those. I didn't have to ask for permission. I knew that was my guidance. Under this president, that is not the case. So uh, when you're in a meeting like that and you try, you're trying to maintain legitimacy, you're trying to maintain that you are expressing, you're speaking for the State Department, yeah. you're speaking for the United States... I got to say, if I was in a meeting with somebody and that happened, I, you know, uh, and I was that foreign leader, I'd be like, why am I even wasting my time talking to you? That's exactly right. Uh, it's embarrassing. Well, uh, we got to take a quick break. We're going to have more uh, with uh, Chuck Park uh, in a moment. We're back with a for- former Foreign Service officer, uh, Chuck Park, who's just resigned from uh, the State Department in a very public way uh, with criticisms of uh, what is going on with the State Department and uh, this administration. Uh, look, plenty of there's a long and proud tradition of 
in Democratic and Republican administrations of people, uh, foreign service officers and others saying, I can no longer uh, stand by and, and, and do this job and I resign. Uh, it's rare, it's rare that people then write an op-ed and it's a very public resignation in the way that yours is. Why did you want to write an op-ed and, and send a very strong message about why you were leaving? Um, so, you know, I've been asked a lot, of, uh, a bunch of times over the last uh, 24 hours whether I'm calling people out. Uh, the answer, the short answer is yes, but I'm not calling out my former colleagues in the Foreign Service. Um, I'm not calling out other civil servants in, in the federal bureaucracy. They're doing their jobs and they're working hard. I am calling out, calling out the American people. Um, if you are concerned with what's coming out of this White House, if you're disgusted, dismayed by images of, again, children in squalid detention centers, if you don't like your president um, using rhetoric that emboldens white nationalists, then it's up to you to resist. And you can resist by protesting, you can publish an op-ed, you can run for office, or you can vote. Um, And so I hope to do one or more of those things uh, now that I'm out of government. Mm -hmm. You, uh, you, You were in for 10 years... Uh, you were doing, you know, you knew what the job was. You knew that you would, might be working for administration that with different politics than your own. And plenty of people work for administrations with different politics. But if everybody resigned every time there was a new president, there would be chaos. I completely agree. So, you know, I'm not advocating that you know every president should bring in an entire new bureaucracy every time there's a transition. That would, that would be chaos. Uh, and, and you would get people with no qualifications and no experience. That's right. I mean, the, yeah, as much ways. as people deride in this yeah. administration deride career civil servants, calling them bureaucrats, these are people who develop an expertise in what they're doing. Absolutely. So all I can say to respond to that question is that I couldn't do it anymore for myself. And to me, it felt like kind of this president and working for this president was an extreme kind of frustrating uh, kind of outrage inducing experience almost on a daily basis. And I'm referring more mostly to, to domestic policies and the, the foreign policies that I had to. The, the president often says in the prior administration, uh, Peter, people around the world were laughing at us. No one's laughing at us now. Is that your experience? Because uh, I hear, I mean, in my travels overseas, I hear a lot of laughter, and it's not like laughing with us. I'm going to be a little cute and respond to that. So it's, it's really, I, I've been in meetings where the people didn't know that I was the U.S. diplomat in the room, and it's really interesting to hear what other nations say about us behind our backs when they think we're not listening. Mm. Um, and it's not all positive. They, there's still a belief in America. So let me reaffirm that. Um, and kind of just to, to, to circle back to kind of the core job of a foreign service officer, of a diplomat, is to, to represent America overseas, to explain it, and to defend America. I'm not sure right now that there's a coherent America to project to the world. There's an America I believe in, and I came home to fight for it. Chuck Park, thank you very much for talking oh, to thanks us. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. A real pleasure. Thanks, Anderson. Well, up next, exclusive new reporting that for the first time ties a controversial EPA decision involving a copper and gold mine 
to President Trump. For the first time, President Trump is now directly tied to a controversial reversal on a major U.S. environmental decision. There's exclusive new reporting tonight by CNN's Drew Griffin detailing a conversation the president had regarding a decision that could upend more than a decade of scientific warnings involving Alaska's pristine Bristol Bay. Drew Griffin has details. The meeting took place on the tarmac during an Air Force One stopover June 26th. Alaska Governor Mike Dunleavy, a pro-mining, pro-business, anti-EPA governor, met with Donald Trump for nearly a half hour. Just got off of Air Force One with me with President Trump. Dunleavy has been pushing for approval of a massive gold and copper mine known as the Pebble Mine, planned for Alaska's Bristol Bay watershed, home to the breeding grounds for one of the world's largest and most pristine sockeye salmon fisheries. And after his meeting aboard Air Force One, Dunleavy said this about the president. He really believes in the opportunities here in Alaska. And he's doing everything he can to work with us on our mining concerns. Inside EPA sources now tell CNN the very next day, June 27th, top EPA officials in Washington held an internal video conference with Seattle and told the staff the EPA was removing a special protection for Bristol Bay and, in essence, clearing the way for what could be one of the largest open-pit mines in the world. That internal announcement was a total shock to top EPA scientists, sources told CNN, because their environmental concerns were overruled by Trump political appointees. Bristol Bay and its tributaries are regarded as one of the world's most important salmon fisheries. Roughly half the world's sockeye salmon come from here. It's been protected since 2014, when after three years of study, the Obama-era EPA used a rare provision of the Clean Water Act to basically veto any mining that could pose a threat. EPA scientists writing a mine would result in complete loss of fish habitat that was irreversible. It's mind-boggling that it's still being considered at all. Christine Todd Whitman is a Republican, a former New Jersey governor, and under President George W. Bush, ran the EPA. She has joined several other former EPA chiefs to publicly oppose the mine. The potential damage is so overwhelming. The opposition to it up there is amazing. Over 80 miles of streams, thousands of acres could be damaged from this project. This is the second time during the Trump administration the political appointees at the EPA have decided to remove special protections for Bristol Bay to pave the way for this huge mine. In 2017, President Trump's first EPA administrator, scandal-plagued Scott Pruitt, canceled the protections after a private meeting with the mine company's CEO. After a CNN report exposed the meeting and the lack of scientific debate behind the reversal, Pruitt backed down and put the protections back in place. Now another private meeting, this time with the president himself, has led to yet another win for the mine and removal of environmental protections for this pristine watershed. One of the most troubling things about this administration on the environmental side is this disregard of science. They're, they're gutting science across the agencies, across the departments, across the government. Even if scientists at the EPA are advising you, Mr. President, this is very dangerous to the environment, to the fisheries, to the state of Alaska. If the president decides, that's the decision? That's the decision. And the only recourse then is for environmental groups to sue? 
environmental groups, Native Alaskans, they'll have a host of lawsuits, I am convinced. Alaska's Governor Mike Dunleavy, elected last fall, is a huge Trump supporter. He's met with President Trump multiple times, sent this letter to the president asking for a long list of EPA reversals, including what he called the Clean Water 404 veto, a direct reference to Pebble Mine. A member of his staff used to work on the Pebble Project in public relations. And at EPA headquarters, Andrew Wheeler, the former coal company lobbyist who now runs the agency, has a tie to Pebble Mine, too. He has recused himself from decision-making on the project because his former law firm represents the mine. Drew Griffin joins me now. I mean, just, the, you know, even saying a former coal company lo- uh, lobbyist, coal industry lobbyist, uh, is now running it, you know, that says a lot. We've seen so many of these decisions, favors, really, that put developers or mines or drilling rigs ahead of the environment. So is this a done deal? I mean, will this mine be built? Uh, well, Pebble Mine must still have its permit application approved. But our EPA sources, Anderson, say this is basically a done deal. The EPA says that those Obama-era protections were just outdated. I'll tell you, Anderson, the government scientists we've been talking to don't believe that for one minute. They consider this mine terribly dangerous for the Bristol Bay watershed. There's no doubt this was a decision by those Trump appointees, not scientists, correct? Yes. Matthew Leopold, the general counsel for EPA, made this decision. At first, the EPA denied that this meeting the day after the the governor's meeting took place even happened. Not true. When we confronted the EPA with our own evidence, they admitted this meeting did take place. It's in this meeting one day after Trump met with Alaska's governor that those EPA scientists were basically told the decision was made. And as one EPA official told us, Anderson, we were told to just get out of the way. Uh, again, a government agency, they, they deny a meeting took place and then you show them right. what you have on it. And then they're like, oh, yeah, that happened. That's I mean, right. Drew Griffin, uh, I'm glad you're doing this job. Thank you. Thanks. Coming up, President Trump takes hits from the 2020 candidates after his trip to El Paso. We'll talk about that with presidential candidates uh, Julian Castro and whether he thinks the president is honest when he says he wants to do something on background checks. 